Welcome to those of you that are not out on spring break, getting tore up drunk at the beach. <laughs> now we're glad you're here today, and man, whatever we had today was really good. We have to request this again. It's like some kind of Szechuan beef or something like that. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. First time I had seconds in a while. So now that everybody's got their food, everybody's set, we're in Deuteronomy 7. And we're in the part of the Deuteronomy, which is the stipulations of the covenant. So this is the large section. It's basically chapters 6 through probably 21, 22, somewhere around there. And it's laying out just like in other ancient Near East covenants, it's laying out, okay, this is your end of the bargain. This is what you have to do, Israel, as my vassal. Remember, God's the great king. Israel's the vassal that's been liberated from bondage in Egypt to be free and to serve God and to serve Him only. And that's the key is in an, in an ancient Near East vassal treaty, one of the things that was required in almost all of them was covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty. So if you had a treaty with this king and you were his vassal, you could not go make a treaty with the other kings. You could not hedge your bets. You couldn't swear allegiance. Like Jesus would say, no man can serve two masters. Okay? You had to basically say, I'm going to be faithful to this king or I'm not. And so what God is doing in His version of the covenant treaty, which is the entire book of Deuteronomy, is He's telling Israel, you're either going to be loyal to Me or you're not. And if you're loyal to me, this is what that will entail, and this is what that will look like, and this is the things that I'll do for you. But if you're not loyal to me, then that means your loyalty is to some other king, and, and you get none of the protection, none of the things that I would do for you. None of that you can presume. And so that's one thing to keep in mind in this section. The other thing to keep in mind is remember back all the way to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, God said to Abraham in the fourth generation, I'm going to bring your descendants back to this land. But I'm not going to do it now because the sin of the Amorites, which is a generic term that's roughly synonymous with Canaanites, has not yet reached its full measure. This is Genesis 15. It's the key to understanding all of the conquest. People like to jump right in and read Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy 7 or Deuteronomy 20 or some of the other passages that talk about holy war and they try to immediately start looking at it through the lens of modern warfare or ancient Near East tribal rivalries. And they completely miss the entire context of the Deuteronomy and the Joshua and Judges account which of the conquest, which is it's based in God's judgment on the Canaanites that He promised back to Abraham that by the time Abraham's descendants were ready to enter into the land, the descendants of the Canaanites at that time will have become so wicked that they, like the people in Noah's day, like the people in the city of the plains, will be ripe for God's judgment. So that's the key, is the conquest has a dual purpose. Providing land and, and, and a home for the descendants, the seed of Abraham, for the covenant faith of Israel, and at the same time being a judgment on the Canaanites and the gods that they served. Just like God judged Egypt through the plagues and the gods they served. This is, his judgment on the Canaanites is intended to be the same thing. So God's concern with the Canaanites is to that, that they and all remnants of their cultic identity, 
be driven out of the land. That's the key concept with the Canaanites, is God is concerned to remove all of their cultic identity. So the language used in the Canaanites' account of the battles and the conquest is language of utterly destroy, show no mercy, wipe out, exterminate. Like These are verbs that are used, but the, the emphasis on them is not literally on the killing of every man, woman, and child. The emphasis is on the destroying the identity of the Canaanites, in particularly as it relates to their cultic standing their worship, their, their, their Canaanite idolatry. Because the idolatry of Canaan was different than other forms of idolatry in the sense that it was rampantly wicked. It involved orgiastic worship. It involved all kinds of sexual practices. It involved child sacrifice. So these were the things that would really get God's judgment to fall. Not, again, not, oh, you pray to a different God. We're going to kill you. No, because God didn't say wipe out the Philistines. He didn't say wipe out the Egyptians. He didn't say wipe out the Assyrians or the people of Tyre or Sidon. He didn't, no, this was a particular judgment on these particular peoples, the seven nations that lived in this area. And it was a one-time thing, never again repeated in the history of Israel. It was intended to be a one-time judgment against these peoples, thrusting them out. The language that God used was vomiting in them out, the land vomiting them out, so that Israel would be established there and would be God's covenant people in that land, which was the crossroads of all humanity at the time. So that's the purpose. It's important because when we start reading the, Gen the, the Canaanite conquest accounts, we will immediately start reading them through our lens of warfare. And if we do that, we're going to get off on the wrong track. We're, gonna we're not going to understand the passage in its contextual and historical understanding. And so we'll start reading stock language that was used to battle accounts where figures of speech are employed, and we'll start reading that literally because we don't know any better. We don't know that spare no one, man, woman, and child doesn't literally mean go in and kill every man, woman, and child. It's a stock phrase of utterly wipe out the identity of these people, driving them out. And we'll miss things like the fact that God will say in one breath, you know, go in, drive it, destroy, destroy, destroy all the people, leave nothing alive. And then the next minute he'll say, do thus and such to the survivors. Well, how can there be survivors if it's left no one alive? Because the phrase left no one alive is talking about the armies or the military aspect of the battles, not literal so it's important to keep that in mind. I'm front-loading all this because this is a discussion that will happen throughout the next book and a half of the Bible at least. And so it's important to always keep that in the front of our minds that there's things like hyperbole, exaggeration, figures of speech. There's always exceptions. All doesn't mean all. Completely wipe out, let's say for instance, Jericho. And Jericho completely wiped out and the inhabitants put to the sword. Doesn't say it, but there's an implied except for Rahab and all those who are in her household that we read about. So there's exceptions to all of these passages that seemingly speak of utter destruction of people when in reality what it's talking about is the utter destruction or the driving out of their military forces and their cultic identity, their religious identity. That's what's intended in all of these. So in this section of Deuteronomy, it's going to introduce for the first time in this book 
what had already been introduced in Exodus when God was talking in Leviticus about driving out the peoples. And it's going to say, chapter 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. So God is saying, make no treaty. Why? Because he's, they've making a treaty. The word treaty shouldn't be, uh, that's a bad translation. It's the word bereath. It's the word covenant. I don't know why Navi chose treaty here, but it's the word covenant. Do not make a covenant with them. Why? Because you're in covenant with me. And a covenant will divide your loyalty. So God is their covenant suzerain. So no other peoples can they enter into a covenant suzerain vassal treaty relationship with. And that's what God's saying to do. And He's directing it at these seven nations. And nations is misleading in our modern language because we think of nations like America, China, Russia. But these aren't nations. These are city-states. These are, these are, it'd be like the area is, I mean, like think of a part of Charlotte that had its own identity. And that'd be closer to what's going on in here. Like the, the, the Jebusites, that was just the people that lived in and around Jerusalem. They were a loose confederation. They had an identity. You know, the Perizzites, maybe people in some of the hill country that were roughly in a certain area. So these aren't nations, but they are groups of people. Seven particular groups of people within this land of Canaan. That's who Israel's drive, going to be judgment on. Israel is going to be God's judgment on these people. And it says in verse 3, do not intermarry with them. Literally, you know, give them your daughters and take their daughters as your wives. Intermarrying, in the sense, don't do that with these peoples. The notion that it has in this section, particularly, would apply to treaty marriages, covenant marriages, marriages where you do it for political gain exactly what Solomon would do later, which would cause the downfall of Israel. And what God's saying is do not enter into political alliances, family alliances. Do not be absorbed into this culture because I'm sending you specifically this instance to drive this culture out, to erase this culture from the land because of its wickedness. These seven nations. This also, by the way, speaks to Israel's size. You know, we, when we looked at numbers, we talked about the numbers of Israelites, and some scholars will say, well, there's two million Israelites, three million Israelites that came out of Egypt. And we talked about how well, that's taken Eleph literally, but if it's used as troops or tribe or clan, that it's probably, the numbers were probably closer to like 50,000 to 100,000 um, people coming out of Egypt. And that would fit with this, because if the Israelites were literally two million people, there were not seven nations larger and stronger than two million people in the land of Canaan. That would mean there would be at least 14 million Canaanites, and there were not even close to that number of people in the entire land. So this again is a, one biblical reason for reading the numbers in the book of Numbers as not literal accounts. It doesn't have anything to do with not taking the Bible seriously. It has everything to do with actually taking the Bible seriously and in light of history. But again, go back and watch the numbers videos if you want those discussions. So he says, uh, 
do not intermarry them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and, you will, and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. So no marriage alliances. No, no absorbing into Canaanite culture. Instead, break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people. His segula, treasured possession. His unique, like the, the word segula, it only occurs a handful of times in Scripture, and it usually contextually refers to the king has his palace and all of his treasure, but then there's like some special thing that he has for a special purpose. Like his own particular treasure. Among all his other treasure. He owns it all, but there's special treasure. That's what God's using, the, the language that's used to describe Israel here. Out of all the nations of the earth, which all belong to God in an ultimate sense, Israel is his particular treasure. They are, have a purpose. They have a unique function. In this instance, it's to be judgment on these seven city-states, these seven people groups and their idolatry. And he goes on, lest they think that puts them in any position to brag, because your first thought would be, oh, we're his treasured possession. We're team God, <laughs> team Yahweh. We can't, nothing, you know, we're, we're it. We're the chosen ones. Look what he says right after that. He says, the Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Again, arguing for not the millions of Israelites coming out of Egypt notion. The fewest of peoples. You were a small, insignificant number of people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your forefathers that He brought you out with a mighty hand and, a redeemed, and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commands. But those who hate Him, He will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate them. As He's about to show to the Canaanites, those who hate Him. So the importance is, is balancing and saying, one, God's saying, I didn't choose you because you're great. I chose you because I chose you. I love you because I love you. And because of what I told your forefather, Abraham. He's the reason that you're here. Linking this all the way back to Genesis 15. You cannot read any of the conquest apart from Genesis 15. And I'm beating that horse to death because it needs to be beaten. We have to always remember that. Genesis 15 is the key to the conquest narratives. But he's reminding them, this is why I'm doing this. This is why. And this is your role in this as my treasured possession. Your role is to be my instrument of judgment and to be a holy nation set apart. So there has to be a distinction when you enter this land. Or else, you'll suffer the same fate the Canaanites suffer. And I'll use another nation to drive you out. Which God will do. He does do. But... It's important to keep this in mind. And he goes on and reveals again his nature. I'm the God keeping his covenant of love. That's what grounds the book of Deuteronomy. The whole book of Deuteronomy is about God's love 
in this covenant. And love, not just emotions. Love is not just a feeling. Love is a behavior in response. Seeking the highest good of the other person. Love is much more an action in the Hebrew Bible than it is a feeling. And God is declaring love to someone in the covenant context in particular means loyalty. Loyalty to someone is how you love someone in the ancient Near East Suzerain Treaties. So the king of Assyria make a treaty with the king of Egypt and it would talk about show love to the king as you would your own brother. It would actually be written in some of these treaties. And it didn't mean just think warm thoughts about them. It meant treat them as if they're family and be loyal to them. And so this is what God's covenant is. It's a covenant of His loyalty, His chesed, His, his covenant devotion to His people. But it's not a covenant of... He's, he's a different suzerain. He's a different type of king than all the others. Because He is one who is, as He says it, uh, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commandment. So keeping his, He's ready to show love to a thousand generations. Again, we've said there have not even been a thousand generations in all of human history. This is a way of saying infinite. You can't exhaust His love. Of those who love Him, of peoples who serve Him, of the, His love will be unending. But He's not cosmic Santa Claus. He's not heavenly granddad. He doesn't just, oh, boys will be boys, nations will be nations, idolaters will be idolaters. No. He is not... Verse, or verse 10, but those who hate Him, He will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate Him. So yes, His love does extend to the generations infinitely. But those who oppose Him, those who hate Him, to their face, in other words, them, not their descendants, not punishing you for somebody else's sins, but them, He will repay. And that's Israelite or Gentile. As we're going to see later, this does not exempt Israel. Israel will be, if anything, the first to experience such discipline. And he'll do it in Joshua. He'll do it the very first account of Israel when somebody comes in and specifically disobeys God's command that we're going to read in the next section. He will treat them the way the people of Jericho were treated. Utterly destroyed. Removed from the realm of existence. He'll do that with Achan and his family who were Israelites while at the same time sparing and showing covenant love to Rahab and her family who were Canaanites. God is no respecter of persons. And it's not cultural identity or race or ethnicity that He ever attacks. It's covenant behavior and idolatry wickedness. Those are the things that determine one standing in Israel. Standing in covenant with God. So, verse 12 then, Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws that I give you today. Here's the blessings that He promises. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep His covenant of love with you. There's that phrase again. As He swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine, and olive oil, those are the three staples of food in Canaan. The calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks in the land He swore to your forefathers to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, for there will, nor will any of your livestock be without young. 
The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but He will inflict them on all who hate you. This is, this is the promise that God's making if Israel keeps their end of the bargain. This is what God's saying, this is my end of the bargain. And these are all things, this is the irony. All of these things in this paragraph, every one of these promises is specifically what the gods Baal and Asherah were known for bringing. Specifically, Baal and Asherah, the male and the female. Baal, the lord of the storm. Asherah, his earthly consort. They were specifically thought to ensure fertility, bountiful crops, good health. So you go worship them in orgiastic worship sessions on the high places. And you bring your raisin date cakes and your, your like, you know, wine and your delicacies and you do all that and you go and you have a feast and you have sex with any and everything, including animals, including children, including relatives. You, you do all of this stuff in order to incite Baal. Baal will then send his sperm, literally the rain is seen as Baal's sperm, into the land. It will impregnate the womb of Asherah, the mother earth goddess, and that will mean your crops grow. That will mean your plants and your animals are fruitful and abundant. And even you yourselves will be able to conceive and have children. This is how Canaanite fertility worship worked. And God is saying specifically, I'm the one who causes all of that. Just like the Egyptians thought their gods were in control of things like the gnats and the flies and the river Nile and the sun shining and all of this stuff. And God systematically said, nope, you're not in charge of that, 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 or that. I'm the one doing it all. The Canaanites think that their gods are in charge of these things. And God's sending Israel in and saying, no, you're going to show them and the world, I am the God who does these things. And so then he says, verse 16, you must, and NIV, I don't know why, again says destroy. It's devour. The word is akal, to eat, to swallow up. You must devour all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity. Do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. It ends up being a snare to the nation. It happens with Solomon definitively and ultimately. But as far back as this, God's telling him not to do it. And then the last paragraph, you may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? Remember, these are fortified Canaanite city-states. High walls, thick walls, and people are actually fairly tall as well. Israel are not big people. God says, verse 18, do not be afraid of them. Remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. He's telling them, hey, remember where we came from. Now, these people, many of them were not alive when it happened. This is the generation that's been born in the wilderness. But their parents were. So they heard firsthand from their parents who literally saw, and, and some of them, you know, Joshua and Caleb are still alive. Some of them did see the ones who came out of Egypt as children, they did see. They remember walking through that Red Sea with a wall of water on each side. You do not forget that, as, especially as a child if it's happening. And so he's calling them back, remember that. And he's re reassuring them, moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. The hornet, there's, there's scholars 
have three basic views on that. That phrase, the hornet, is either literal, and God will use like insects, hornets, to drive them out, maybe, or that's a phrase that means like it's a it's a it's a figure of speech, and it means panic or despair, and that will you know this sense of panic will drive the people out. Or there's others who think I think it should be translated as um, like. I don't know, depression or futility or something like, like this sense of overwhelming dread and the people will just flee. So it, it, different views, it doesn't matter really. What God's saying is I'm going to actually be the one doing this thing, driving them out. So verse 21, do not be terrified by them for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You'll not be allowed to eliminate them all at once or the wild animals will multiply around you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will give their kings into your hand and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. That's the key to all of this. He will give them into your hands. You will wipe out their names from under heaven. You will erase their identity. That is the judgment that God is decreeing for these seven peoples. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and the gold on them. Do not take it for yourselves or you'll be ensnared by it, for it's detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house or you, like it, will be harem, set apart for destruction. If you, th- th- God is declaring these people's cultic identity as harem. To be devoted to God through destroying it. And he's telling Israel, do not take this into your tent. Do not take their treasures. Do not loot their treasures for yourselves. In this instant, these treasures, and he's meaning these idols, the actual figurines or the implements used in their cultic worship, are going to be destroyed. That's what I desire. And if you don't, you'll be treated just like it. Utterly abhor and detest it, for it is harem, set apart for destruction. Now we're going to see in Joshua 7, an Israelite and his family specifically ignore this. And to actually do exactly what God said not to do. And they will be treated by God as harem. Showing that yes, God's judgment on the Canaanites may seem severe, but it's just as severe on Israel if they do the things the Canaanites do. And that's the key to all of this is God is trying to ingrain at this pivotal moment in Israel's national identity. None of this can remain. You cannot serve me dividedly. Drive out. I am the instrument of judgment on these people's practices. The implication is those of those peoples who turn from those practices, who turn to the Lord, people like Rahab and those in her family, they're spared by God. They're actually spared. Even the ones that kind of use trickery to, to, to forgo the judgment. We'll read about the Gibeonites later and how they actually kind of trick Israel into making a treaty with them. And God will be like, actually, you've got to spare them. You made a treaty with them. You've got to spare them. So God's not genocidal in the sense of wanting to wipe out peoples. He's idolcidal, <laughs> if that's a word. It should be. It's a fun one to say. He wants to wipe out the idolatry of the Canaanites. Purge it. But he's just that in the New Testament, God's the same God. 
This is not just an Old Testament concept. When the New Testament, when the Christian era, when the, when the Pentecost era, the New Covenant Israel is being emerging into the scene, people are bringing their gifts and their offering. And two people, Ananias and Sapphira, what do they do? They offer their gifts, but then they keep a little bit back, but they lie about it. And the Holy Spirit strikes them dead. Why? Because it was a key moment in the life of the church. And what the Holy Spirit was ingraining into God's people through severe judgment was lying has no place in my kingdom. Especially self-aggrandizing lying. And they drop dead, both of them. So God doesn't change between Old Testament and New Testament, but what does change is the type of the manifestation of his kingdom in different eras. And in this era that we're reading, the manifestation, the next phase of the covenant was to establish a physical theocracy in this land called Canaan that would go until the arrival of the Messiah. And then it would expand worldwide into a spiritual heavenly kingdom, not of this earth. And that's where we find ourselves today. But the principles of the conquest are still there. Do not abhor, do not, I mean, do not be seduced by the idols around you. Do not take them into your house. You know, be a holy people. These are all still marching orders for God's people. They just look different in a pluralistic, non-theocratic society like we live in today. So when Paul goes to Athens and he sees all the idolatry, he doesn't start burning and, and overthrowing those temples. What he does is he burns down and overthrows rhetorically those ideas those concepts. He speaks against, he preaches the gospel. And, and that's how the idolatry gets attacked. That's how it gets overthrown in the lives of people in, under the new covenant. So we do not wage war against flesh and blood. Rather, we set ourselves, wage war against those ideas that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. We don't wield the sword, we wield the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of what we speak and what we say. And on that note, this sword has been swinging for two minutes too long. So, you guys go have a great day. There's a little bit of this delicious uh, Szechuan beef here. Grab some of that. We'll see you next week. Bring someone. Remember, that's an ongoing challenge. You tell someone about the study and bring them. We want to pack this place out. Y'all have a great week.